0: Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. After you found your place in the scripture, please stand to your feet. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Joel 2, verses 12 through 17. This is what God's word says. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Blow the ram's horn in Zion. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the aged. Gather the infants, even babies nursing at the breast. Let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? Let us pray. Father, as we pay attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hands to do, Lord, to behold Christ in the word, to know what he says and to believe what he says and to do what he says. May we understand what biblical repentance looks like in greater measure than we have already learned. And may we turn continually running to your arms for you are gracious. We are here to worship you this morning, but we are also here to receive from you, God, because we need this grace. We need your compassion. We need your faithful love, and we are grateful that ultimately you have relented from sending disaster our way because of what Christ has done for us. But Lord, meet us now in your word. We know that you are present in your people, and you dwell everywhere, God, for your omnipresent. But Lord, you are especially present in a powerful way when your word is preached and read. And so Lord, may we be keenly aware that you are amongst us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. Guests, please be seated. Thank you. The sermon is titled, Humanity's Directive. Humanity's Directive, The Turning of Judah. The Turning of Judah. It was the summer of 1990, and I was just 16 years old. I had just finished my junior year of high school and was about to be a senior. As had been the norm for the past few summers, I went to summer camp with our church youth group. I remember being on a grassy recreational field, the same one that we take our teenagers up to for winter camp, and I was walking towards my cabin when another teen boy in our youth group approached me. He told me that his ex-girlfriend had recently called him and told him that she had AIDS. This young man that was confiding in me was terrified because he had fornicated with her when they were dating, and now he was worried that he might have AIDS too. I felt compelled to help this young man connect with God in this moment. And so I did the only thing that I knew to do. I grabbed my Schofield reference Bible and I opened up the concordance section of it, and I looked up the word mercy. My eyes quickly found Proverbs twenty thirteen. I remember it very distinctly. And I turned to it and I read it to myself, and then I read it to this young man. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says this Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I said to him, you need to confess your sins to God, and you need to not do those sins anymore. God will grant mercy to you, and maybe, just maybe, you won't have AIDS. What a comfort God's word was to this young man. It assured him of God's mercy and love and willingness to forgive and to restore. Scripture shows us how it is that we can take hold of the grace and the mercy of God because it is in the taking hold of this grace and mercy that we find blessing from God and blessing with God. This is why King David could say that God's law, that by his law and by his commands, we are warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. King David saw God's word as a means of God. Communicating truth to us so that we could receive blessing from God. This blessing from God is really part of the reason why God created mankind in the first place. If you remember at the end of the creation week, God blessed Adam and Eve bountifully. Creation and the garden itself were gifts from God to them And they were able to enjoy them. And they were able to thus tangibly sense and know the love of God. And when sin entered in, sin and disobedience towards God, blessing was removed and curses were instituted. Yet, we know from reading scripture that God desired to show mercy and grace. And so the rest of the Bible shows us how it is that we can be rescued from God which leads to a renewed blessing from and through Jesus Christ. But this salvation, this renewed blessing, this restoration does not come apart from repentance, which is a turning away from sin and a turning to God. In our passage today, we see God using the prophet Joel to call Judah, what's left of Israel, to repentance so that they may receive blessing from God. Judah's sin has brought God's judgment and curses upon them in the form of a locust invasion and a drought. All of their crops are devastated, which means that they and their animals are starving and hurting. But Judah has been torpid, as we've learned, which means they are spiritually and mentally unalert. They, are, they aren't aware of what's really going on, and they don't understand why this is all happening to them. Also, their temple and religious life is in shambles too. Without crops, which are making them hungry, the devastation of them, but without the crops, they cannot bring thank offerings to God, love offerings to God, these grain and drink offerings that we just read about. And these feasts and rituals and offerings, they had a dual purpose, It wasn't just to show love to God for God's love to them. These uh, festivals and feasts and these offerings, they were all about God's blessing uh, Israel, but they were also about pointing people to Jesus Christ, for they all foreshadowed the saving work of Jesus Christ in some way, Okay, that he has come to save sinners and that Christ blesses them. And so these thank offerings, which are gospel pictures, They've been cut off from Israel, from Judah, because, they're, uh, because of their sin. And God is not blessing the land. This judgment that God has brought upon them, it is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And Joel says that this judgment event, it has come, but it also is coming. And so we learned, when we talked about the day of the Lord a few sermons ago, we learned that the day of the Lord is an event that is often repeated. Sometimes it's past, sometimes it's uh, present, and sometimes it's future. And we saw that it has a final fulfillment. There is a final day of the Lord where Jesus comes to judge the world, to save his people, and at that time, he will restore creation so that his people can live in a new heaven on a new earth where everything is forevermore blessed. And so we see basically the beginning of what happened at Genesis reversed, where there was blessing, but in curses came, we see the curses removed so that blessing is forevermore. And so that's what these festivals and feasts and things teach this day of the Lord foreshadows an even greater day of the Lord, a final one. And so we see in scripture that this blessing, this grace and mercy that we've talked about through Joel, all right, it will come to Judah from God only when they turn from their sin and believe the things that God is telling them about their sin. And the same is true for us. And so this morning, we're gonna look at repentance once again. We previously examined complete repentance. We look at that and everything from attire to behavior and thinking. We looked at that in regards to repentance. And then we also, if you remember, we looked at corporate repentance and how as a group, We, the covenant people of God, just like Judah, how it is that Judah and we can repent together of the sins that we are corporately or together guilty of. Today's passage, again, deals with repentance, but it deals with the blessing that comes with repentance, okay? And it also deals with a shift in the way that the world sees us when God blesses us because of repentance, all right? So that is the thrust of our passage today. Repentance as the means of receiving God's blessing, which is a witness to the world. And so that is humanity's directive. For God, he calls people to repent. He calls his church to repent, just like he is calling Judah to turn from their sin. And so the first thing we see this morning is we see Judah's requirements for repentance. Judah's requirements for repentance. In verse 12 and in the first part of 13, we see Judah's requirements for repentance. Let me reread that scripture to you. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. So this urgent command to repent is laid before Judah. We see that right away. And notice that it is God, it is his declaration. He he is the one who is initiating salvation here. Salvation is always at God's initiative, just like we see in Genesis. God didn't wait for Adam and Eve, and he's not waiting for us. It is his idea and his urging Repentance must take place now, even now, immediately with no procrastination. The time for meditation and contemplation is over. Previously, if you remember, I feel like I'm setting up a TV show previously on this show, right? Previously in the the Sermon on Joel, right? Previously, we saw that the priests, they were called to spend the night in meditation And thinking about the judgment that had befallen them. That time is over. Stop thinking and repent. Repent now. The people were already called to consider their devastation and to come out of their torpidity, their mental slumber. That time for consideration is over. You should be awake by now, Judah. They were already called to begin fasting and to assemble before God. It is time to repent. The day of the Lord was already pronounced upon them. And the day of the Lord was pronounced as having been and having will come. And so right now, they must turn and repent. The message is, again, actually the Lord's utterance and declaration. Joel is just mediating the message right now. Too often, when God has confronted us in our sin, we hesitate to repent. We have this love affair with our sin. We truly enjoy sin. And we do not want to part with it. In fact, we often nurture and cradle and feed our sin. Do we not? We don't repent now. We feed our sin. And I am not wrong when I say that. This is the nature of sin remaining in us. The last two sermons Pastor Steve preached from Matthew 5 were on anger and lust. And there were likely some in here that did not want to repent. In a congregation this size, I, I would bet my paycheck on that, okay? Instead of repenting, some of you may have spent time resisting the Lord and justifying your actions. God was talking to you, and you were arguing with him by resisting his call to repent. Even now you must repent, Whatever your sin is, you must repent. Stop thinking your own thoughts and start thinking God's thoughts. Stop sinful actions and start godly actions. Put off the old self with its practices and instead put on the new self, which is being renewed, which is being transformed in knowledge of the Creator. I must stress the urgency to repent. Don't even wait till the end of this sermon to repent. Repent now. You and I know what our sins are. Let us repent and be reminded of what Christ did to save us from those sins and the wrath of God. This repentance that Judah is called to, that God declares to Judah, he says it is not just to be outer repentance or just action-oriented repentance. Rather, it is to be with one's complete heart. Okay? God requires total repentance from them in their thoughts, in their minds, in the inner person. Certain clothing, we know, can be faked and worn, or it can be worn and repentance can be faked. You can dress the part even if you're not sincere. Even actions can be faked to look like repentance is actually taking place when it is not. But true repentance, it includes the whole person. The whole person. Inner thoughts that truly conform to God's word, which will then affect the actions and emotions and the way that you live out your life. Proverbs 4.23 tells us this. It tells us to guard our hearts because that is the wellspring of life. That is the source of all that we do, say, and think. Guard our hearts for it is the wellspring of life. Now, the... The tension with Judah, the tension that they live with and that we live with is this listen, our very own sinful minds and hearts that we are to guard, our very own sinful minds keep us from seeing the sinful condition that we are in. Did you grab that? Our sinful minds keep us from seeing our sinful condition. Yet there is a grace that God gives to help. He still uses the means of a fallen mind with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us as we read the word and hear the word so that our minds can be renewed so that we can see the fallen condition that we are in. Is that amazing? That your very own sinful mind that stops you from seeing your true condition, God overcomes that by his word and spirit, renews this gray matter up here, right? The essence of your heart, not here, but what you think, your inner person. He changes it so that you can see more clearly who you really are. A sinner in need of grace. What an amazing God we have. Thus, we are to use our minds, informed by the word of God, to guard our very own fallen hearts and minds. That is what God has done for us. And God's declaration is that this turning must be now and incomplete, whole and incomplete, wholehearted. God continues then to describe to Judah what this wholehearted repentance looks like. It must include fasting and weeping and mourning. Fasting, we talked about before, it is to go without food or water for a period of time in order to devote that time to prayer to God and confession of sin and repentance and in seeking God's blessing. It is uh, the physical hunger pangs that you feel during fasting are to be physical indicators of the spiritual pain and turmoil that you are in over your sin, your very own sin. Judah was also to weep and to cry and to shed tears. Is anybody here able to fake tears if they really wanted to? Maybe. Maybe you're that good. If you've ever seen an actor just on the dime uh, just command their tear ducts to flow, people can fake that and something else. But they were to weep. That can be faked as well, but they were called to nevertheless. Okay, True tears and sorrow over your sin has to come from a place of, of inner information, inner informing, and inner realization that you have sinned against God. Okay? These people should be devastated and feel devastated and truly be crying because their land is destroyed. There's no food. Their animals are moaning and crying out to God. They should be truly weeping. And if they were found to be in breach of contract with God, which they were, or else God is just being cruel here to them, which He's not, they have breached contract. Thus, that contract stipulated that when they were unfaithful to God and served other gods, God would bring curses upon them and remove blessing from the land that he gave them. By way of reminder, let us not forget that the the fact that this land is there is crucial to our understanding of salvation and what God is going to do for us. This land and it's removal of blessings when they're uh, out of covenant with God, it points us to the fact that when we are out of covenant with God or humanity is out of covenant with God, I'm referring to we in a general sense, not we as the church, but when we are outside of covenant with God, it means ultimately that we will have no blessing in this life and that only God's curses are upon us, which is why hell is a place of uh, suffering and a removal of all blessing from God while the reverse is true, the opposite. The new heaven on the new earth is a place of radical blessing of untold proportion. Those who are in covenant with God are only those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, faith, and they have repented or turned from their sin and turned to Jesus as Lord and now follow him. Okay? That's what it means to come into covenant with God. And he saves those people who are willing to believe that Jesus can save them and who are willing to stop rebelling against God. God shows mercy and grace to those people and brings them into covenant and they will forever be blessed. To be outside of covenant means to reject Jesus as Savior, to continue ruling your own life. Thus, if you die in that condition, you will have utter curses forever pronounced upon your life. And so what we see in Judah in this land of blessings and cursings is a reminder of the eternal reality that is waiting for all of humanity. Are you tracking that? Are you with that? That's what it's there for. And so this is pointing to Christ in many different ways. So Judah was to uh, have wholehearted repentance, fasting, weeping, and then mourning. Judah was to mourn. While they could fast and while they could fake tears, again, true mourning, True sadness comes from the fact that their minds have been truly awakened to their pitiful condition under God's judgment, under his day, this day of the Lord. So genuine sadness, genuine grief, genuine heartache, and genuine brokenness must be what is fueling, has to be, what is fueling their weeping and their fasting. And so after God gives this declaration to Judah, Joel begins to speak. Alright, God's declaration comes first. Joel's declaration comes in verse 13, the first part of it. Joel says, Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. Please notice that the turning to God in verse 12, where God says, Turn to me with all your heart, it is reinforced by Joel saying, Return all right, to the Lord your God. Judah was once faithful in covenant to God. They moved. They changed and mutated. God did not change. God has not mutated. He has not moved. Judah and humanity, we are the mutants. We are the ones who mutate away from the glory of God. They must return to the Lord or turn back to him. And we must do the same as God's covenant people. We must always be turning back to God. We are prone to wander, as the hymn says, this tearing of the heart that they were to participate in is a figure of speech with a literal meaning. I think we understand that. But in the Jewish life, there were a number of ways that they did this. That At different times, they showed their sorrow and their grief, their humility. Sometimes they would wear sackcloth, all right, which is coarse goat hair clothing. It um, doesn't sound appealing to me. It sounds very uncomfortable, and that's the point. It's supposed to show the inner uncomfortability and sadness that you have over your sin or some horrible circumstance. Sometimes in their grief, they fasted and prayed. Sometimes they covered themselves in ashes. And at times, they tore their clothes. At times, they tore their clothes. And to tear one's clothes, I'm not going to do that for you now, all right? Uh, like, what is he doing up there? Let me demonstrate. Not going to happen, Okay. But to tear one's clothes was an outer sign of grief and agony and and the pain that one's soul felt. But the inward reality might not always match the outer sign. Again, deep sorrow can be faked, which is why God tells Judah, tear your hearts, right? That's why Joel repeats that. Tear your hearts, not just your clothing. Their hearts were to be broken over sin. If you were here last week, We sang a song called Break Our Hearts. The lyrics say, Break our hearts, O God, for the sin in our land, for the sin in our lives. Break our hearts. Why do we sing a song like that? Because we don't always want to tear our hearts over the sin that we do before God. Our hearts can be callous and hard and resistant to tearing. And so we plead with God in this song to assist us. We need the grace of God to do what he commands us. To do. We need God to help us break our hearts and tear them. When's the last time we've been torn over our sin and our hearts have grieved because of the filthy pig pens that we wallow in? May we not feign repentance. May it be wholehearted and complete in God's eyes. And so before we move on to the next point, I want to slow down and I want to I want us all. To take a mental inventory of sins that we possibly committed this morning, yesterday, or this week. So let's get very personal here with God. For a moment, begin to list them out in your head if you can. I'll help you. I'll help me. Were you hateful towards anyone this week? Did you lust this last week? Were you ugly and rude to your spouse? Did you discipline your kids according to your standards instead of God's? Were you lacking in mercy this week? And did you fail to share the gospel with that person that God placed before you? Did you use God's name in vain? Were you stingy when you could have been generous? Was your tongue silent this morning as we sang to God this morning? Have you neglected the body of Christ, his church? Did you dishonor your parents in any way? Were you lazy? Were you gluttonous? Were you frivolous with the money that God has given you to manage? His money. Did you break your promise or oath? Did you fail to use your spiritual gifts this week to build up the body of Christ? Have you stirred up strife or contention anywhere? Did you fail to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength this week? Did you fail to love your neighbor as yourself? You see, church, we have much to repent of. That's just the tip of the ways that we can sin. We need to rend our hearts. If you are not a Christian this morning, tearing your heart means that you shed that callous heart before God. Tearing your heart means that you stop arguing with what God says and that you acknowledge that God is perfect and holy and you are not. Tearing your heart means that you recognize that you don't deserve eternal life for disrespecting and turning your back on God. Tearing your heart includes recognizing that God is sovereign and the ruler over your life, but you have attempted to rule your own life in his place. Tearing your heart includes awakening to the reality that the death that you deserve for sinning against God, it was Christ who stood in your place to take that wrath of God and die in your place when he was nailed to the cross and God's wrath was poured out on him for sinners. Tearing your heart means that you're done with the old you and you now submit to God, to Jesus as Lord. The broken and sorrowful heart, the psalmist says, God will not despise. He will not turn away. He will be merciful. He will be gracious to that person. And those are words that we throw around so often that we're going to focus on them this morning so that you understand just how precious and amazing those concepts and realities are. But God will be merciful and gracious to the person who is brokenhearted and sorrowful over their sin. Repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning to Jesus as Lord. And so if you're not a Christian, I pray that you tear your heart, that you turn to the Lord Jesus, who is God, that you turn to him and trust him to save you. That you believe that he died and rose again to save you so that you would receive immeasurable blessings with him and from him. Our God will respond to you. And that is what we look at next. We first saw Judah's requirements for repentance. Now we see God's response to repentance. What was Judah required to do? If they do that, how will God respond? Let's look at that. Second part of verse 13. Joel says he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Notice that both God's declaration and Joel's urging to repent, they are based on the nature of God. Joel knows that God responds to genuine repentance, which is why he makes an unequivocal statement about God, which is followed by a statement of hope. Okay, What do I mean by that? I mean that Joel is stating that there is a possibility of a better future, which is grounded in God's nature. The possibility of a better future is grounded in who God is. And Joel knows that any hope of having their land restored, this blessing restored to their land and lives and worship rituals, it is not grounded in the nation's unfaithfulness, but in God's unchanging, gracious nature. And so what is it that Joel says about God? What is it that he says? He says five things about God that shed light on God's attributes and And also how God relates to Judah. And in understanding how God relates to Judah, we can then see how God relates to humanity and to us. And so what are these five things that Joel mentions? Well, he says that God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and that God relents from sending disaster. So let's talk about these five things, okay? Now, you have to understand that this statement that he just makes, it is not without context and without history, there's actually a very similar situation that takes place in Jonah chapter three and verse four. You can read that on your own if you want, and see that it seems it's almost a mirror of what takes place here. But even way before this, even way before Joel, way before Jonah, this phrase was uttered long ago. You want to know who uttered the phrase? Anybody know? Anybody know? All right. Bueller? Bueller, all right? All right? God said it. God said this about. Himself, This statement was God's self-revelation to Moses and to the people of Israel. Consequently, it's God's self-revelation to us as well. In Exodus 34, Moses is at Mount Sinai with Israel. God had given the two tablets of the covenant to Moses. And in a moment of anger, what does Moses do? Anybody? He throws them down and he breaks them, right? God later instructed Moses, I want you to make two new tablets. I want you to come up to the mountain and meet with me the next day. You're going to present yourself to me. It was there that God would utter the words that we just read in Joel. In Exodus 34, we get the full and original declaration from God, whereas Joel gives an abbreviated version of it, but the essence is the same. Let me read to you Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, this is God talking. The Lord is compassionate, or the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But He will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences. Of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. A lot of people use this passage to talk about generational curses, which is a bunch of garbage, okay? This is saying something different. We don't have time to unpack everything in Exodus. But the outworking of what Joel says is the same as in Exodus. What is God saying in Exodus? Let me give you a brief summary. God is saying that he is gracious and he's forgiving. He maintains faithful love. In Hebrew, it's hesed. He maintains faithful love to a thousand generations. What is this meant to do? It is meant to highlight the magnitude of God's grace and mercy and faithful love. His forgiveness and love and grace are immeasurable. But he still has to punish guilty people. Guilty people who often leave a wake of destruction For their descendants, because of their sin. Descendants who at times continue in like-minded sin. But notice that his grace far surpasses the destruction that people try to bring upon themselves in God's curses. Why? Because grace wins. And God often turns people who are rebellious to him so that they may receive untold grace and mercy and blessings. And that is what God is communicating He's highlighting through the self-proclamation that his faithful love endures forever. Thus, the consequences of sin can be mitigated precisely because he's forgiving. And then Joel explains how it is that God forgives. Okay, So we see, first of all, in that sentence that God is gracious. Back to Joel. God is gracious. This means that God is a God who shows favor that that is a, those are words that we use so often that we we forget we forget their brilliance we forget the 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 what am i trying to say we forget the joy that we're supposed to get from these words and how it just magnifies the glory of god grace is god showing favor now when someone is your let me explain to you the difference between human favor and god's favor when someone is your favorite person you show that person kindness right and you generally shower them with gifts, or you show them preference because you love them. And oftentimes, human favor, it is the case that we show favor because that person does things in the way that we like, and it pleases us, right? Are, are you with me? Some some of you have a favorite kid, okay? You're like, that. that my ch- this one child just makes me so happy. They're my favorite. This other one, not my favorite, okay? <laughs> and... And the same thing with restaurants. You go to a restaurant, that's my favorite restaurant. They take care of me so well, but not here. The food's good, but it's not my favorite. And so favor is not really based on just unconditional love and grace. It's based on performance, okay? With God, it's very different. It is not earned. It's not a reward for something good he sees in us. God is a God who shows favor and grace to people who have not earned such favor and grace. In fact, grace, by its definition, cannot be earned. It has to be freely given. It can't be something that God sees in us that he likes, or else it's not grace. When you ask someone to do you a favor, you are not asking them to do, asking them to do something that they are obligated to do. You don't go to your boss and say, hey, can you do me a favor? Can, can you give me a paycheck? Right? That's not a favor. That's what's entitled to you, Okay. When you ask someone for a favor, you're asking them to do something for you that you have not earned. And when you ask someone for a favor, a true favor, something that you have not earned, there's always the expectation that they might say no because you are not entitled to it. Am I right? When you ask, you're just hoping, please say yes, I need this favor so bad. That's what you're asking for. You're asking for grace. You're asking for something that you didn't earn. You're relying on grace, and that's how God's favor is. These people don't deserve their land to be dis- to be restored. They have violated the God who has saved them from Egypt. They justly deserve God's punishment and devastation. God is the great devastator, according to Joel. But here, Joel recites God's own self-declaration from Exodus 34. The Lord is gracious. In church, we must be in the business of reciting and rehearsing like Joel. We must recite God's nature to each other and to those who are not saved. We must declare God's nature... We must explain his attributes. We must remind each other that God is gracious. Why? Because we are sinners who have not and will never earn God's blessings. But because God is gracious, he is inclined to show grace at times, especially to repentant people. You and I blew it bad this week. We sinned against God. We sinned against our neighbor. I'm glad that God is gracious and shows favor because we don't deserve his blessing. We see that God is secondly, compassionate. Compassion is to be moved to action because you see someone in a pitiful and suffering condition. It's mercy. In our church, we have a mercy ministry. And if you would like to be involved in helping people in their suffering condition, please see Brenna Roy, who is right here in the third row. Do this real quick, right? If you would like to help in compassion ministry, please see her. It's a ministry where we want to minister to those who are hurting and in need of food and clothing and and basic necessities. Joel knows that God can lift people out of the miry clay. And this is where Judah is. They have made their bed, and now they are laying in it or lying in it. I don't know which one it is, all right? They're living in the consequences of their sin. They have turned their back on God, and God has responded by removing blessing from their land. And they're hungry. They're destitute. The land and the animals are suffering. There is no joy. There are no worship rituals and, places and opportunities to praise God for his bountiful gifts because there are no bountiful gifts. They are in a pitiful condition. Yet Joel goes back to God's self-declaration. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God relieves the suffering of those who are in terrible situations. That's attribute number two. And Judah needs to know that God is not just gracious, but he's merciful. He's both gracious plus compassion, all right, compassionate. And let us remember that the more we know of God, the more we know how he relates to us. We don't want to overfocus necessarily on one attribute. No one attribute of God is less or more important than another. God is infinitely good, which means that all of his attributes have the same degree of of goodness, now who is it, according to Scripture, that God has mercy on? Hell-bound sinners. That's a miry pit of untold horror. God's wrath. God has mercy on sinners who destroy their lives, even here on earth. While we were sinners, Christ died for us in order that our suffering might be eliminated suffering under the judgment and the wrath of God. And yet God is more than gracious and compassionate. God is also, thirdly, slow to anger. What a relief it must have been for them to hear as their things are devastated that God is slow to anger. Maybe even some are wondering if that's a contradiction. They object, right? We have to see, first of all, that God's judgment isn't instantaneous. Now, what's interesting about Joel is it starts off with immediate destruction. It seems like there was no patience. Like Joel chapter 1, destruction everywhere, right? Like an atom bomb just went off. The reality is that that's not the case. God has been patient with Judah prior to bringing judgment upon them. That's always the case with God. One of the reasons that God is slow to anger is because he is patient, okay? Let me explain patience, all right? He is patient because he is eternal and not affected by time. God is eternal and not affected by time, thus his patience is otherworldly. It is not like ours. Patience is something that we run out of. Tolerance is something we run out of, but it's in relation to time, Am I right? Have you ever waited in a long line at a theme park or at the grocery store or the DMV or the fast food line? You're like, ah, right? <laughs> because too much time has passed. Okay? The longer we endure something, the less patience we have. And when too much time has expired, we blow up, we get mad, we spew volcanic lava on everything with, and everyone with our words and actions, and whatever is in our pathway just gets lit up. Woof. I have no patience. That's us. Time plays a part in that. God being eternally patient doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't feel the passing of time like we do. And in regards to our rebellion, he doesn't feel that frustration. He doesn't react like we do. We are not pushing God's buttons. Do you get that? He's slow to anger. We don't push him to his limits where he can't take it anymore. And then he finally just blows up and unleashes his wrath. That's not how our God works. He is slow to anger. God simply sees our sin outside of time, and when he deems it wise, he shows his anger for his own glory. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in the form of a question. Follow me here. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, what if he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. What is that saying? Let me explain. God desires to show himself to the world, grace, mercy, but also wrath and power. We need to understand that that his nature, his glory is so magnificent that to hide it would be evil. To hide any of it would be evil. Therefore, God wants to show his wrath and make his power known. But instead of coming right away and unleashing his anger right away, he is patient and he shows slowness to anger. Slowness to anger to who? To those who are going to be destroyed in hell. He shows patience with them so that time is given for his chosen people to receive the mercy and the grace that he wants to give them. That's the only reason God hasn't destroyed all the wicked people in this world because he's giving time for his chosen people to get saved. That's why God is slow to anger, for your your benefit. God gave you time. Do you see the grace of God that he didn't just come at some previous point in history and time's up, everyone else is going to hell? Are you glad that the clock didn't run out on you? That God was compassionate and gracious and slow to anger? God's power is such that it restrains his own wrath from being unleashed on people who deserve it. And he does this to allow time for salvation to take place for vessels of mercy, people he created to be saved beforehand. And so it follows that when the last person who is called to salvation gets that mercy, gets that grace, then God will no longer restrain his wrath and his power will be shown to unbelievers. His patience will have ended for them, and the slowness of anger will end. And so the terms slow to anger really show God's nature. He is not a God who does not get angry. He does. He's a God who is slow to anger, though. Anger will be shown, but not until his mercy to everyone whom he desires to show mercy has been shown. He's slow to anger for the sake of grace. And so the next time, listen, the next time someone mocks Christianity or God and says, so if God is all-powerful, why hasn't he stopped Satan and evil people? The answer is this. He's giving people time to repent. You don't understand our gracious and merciful God. He's giving time for you to repent, you who mock God and think that he is unjust. You are unjust. You have lied and stolen and cheated and dishonored God and blasphemed his name. He's giving time for you to respond in repentance so that you might receive mercy. Do you really want God to come now and end your life and send you to hell forever? No. Receive the mercy of God. Repent. So if God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, we must be as well. We demonstrate the nature of God when we act in accordance with his nature and we glorify God in doing so. We see fourthly that God abounds in faithful love. God abounds in faithful love. God is also a faithful loving God. His love is not erratic. He is faithful and loyal. That is God's loving kindness. God abounds in the sort of love. It is exceedingly great. It's interesting that Joel starts off with devastation and a call to wake up and repent. Then after that devastation and call to wake up and repent, Joel moves into the current visitation of God's judgment. And that judgment is going to come worse. All of this has been to lead them to what we're now reading. He's leading them to see that while all these terrible things are before you, Judah, And that is all you can see. It is before your eyes, judgment and wrath and devastation and hunger and and the animals and no offerings and no drink offerings or grain offerings. That is all they can see. This is bad stuff. Pressing in behind it the whole time is the compassion and grace and slowness of God who is faithful in love. He's trying to help them see that God is a God who can restore remember that that is how God works. That's part of his covenant. He promised to judge them in their sin, but he's promised to be uh, faithful in restoring to them when they are repentant. And so in the background, in the background has always been this grace that is now being revealed as we get to this part of Joel. So God is not just faithful. Listen, Injustice and wrath because he is. He made promises to Judah. You turn to other gods, I will bring my wrath and judgment upon you. God's being faithful to what he said. But now God wants to be faithful to other things he said, that if you repent and return to me with all your heart, then I will reverse the curses. God is always faithful to himself and to his word. And a part of that faithfulness requires that he bless Israel when they return to him. His loving kindness His faithful love, according to his word, according to what Joel says, will perhaps be shown when they repent. We see fifthly in this part that God relents from sending disaster. God relents from sending disaster. That's the fifth thing we see about God. Okay? That is to say that he withdraws the threat of disaster so that judgment does not come to the people. In a previous sermon, I mentioned how God's anger was upon Nineveh. Judgment was coming in 40 days, but the people withdrew, uh, uh, But God withdrew that judgment because they all repented. And that's the essence of what Joel is saying here. Listen, Judah, we know the nature of God. We know that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He has a ton of loving kindness. God stays his hand at times of judgment, right? And instead, he shows these qualities to sinners. Obviously, disaster has come upon us. More is on the way, according to the Lord, in that coming day. But grace is is so near to us. God doesn't always send disaster as threatened. It's possible for us to be recipients of grace. There is blessing hiding behind his judgments, these judgments we have faced. And that's why Joel says what he says in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, who knows? He may relent or he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So you, so that you can offer grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord. Now, Joel reminds them not to forget his nature and that at times he stops the judgment. It's not a guarantee, he doesn't presume it, but he knows that God often does this. God doesn't have to show grace or mercy. It could be that he turns and relents instead of judging. And the phrase that he uses next is remarkable. It says he could leave a blessing behind him, behind him. That word behind was just used a couple times a couple verses ago. In your Bible, if you have them open, you can scan back to Joel chapter 2, verse 3. In Joel chapter 2, verse 3, we saw that a great and powerful people were coming to wreak further havoc on Judah's land. This great and powerful people was a second invasion, this day of the Lord. All right, the first invasion was locusts. The second invasion could be more locusts, but it could be a real army and, uh, that was coming as well. And in Joel 2, verse 3, we saw that in front of the army... Right? Not behind. But in front, there was destruction. And behind them was a flame that burns. This army scorched or destroyed everything and left nothing behind them. Behind them was what? Desolation and wilderness. No produce of the land escaped them. Yet here in Joel 2.14, we see that Joel's Joel's hope is that God would leave a blessing behind him. He uses the same words, okay? So it's important to make the connection with this word behind. Joel is reusing this word with repetition to help us see something. The army that God was sending to bring destruction and leave nothing behind them was God's army. It was his instrument of destruction. Thus, it was God through them, through this army, that was scorching everything in front of them and everything behind them. God was judging and removing blessing. Do you see that? This is just the instrument that he's using. That's why Joel says, maybe, just maybe, God will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him because he has not left a blessing behind him. Through his army and an invasion, he has destroyed everything in front of him and everything behind him. It is God who may restore the land. It is God who might leave a blessing. And if God does this, then you can offer a grain and a drink offering Blessing, again, was a sign that God's people were, in, were faithful to him. And when God blessed the land, then they gave back to him in joy and gladness and these thank offerings. And church, God has relented from sending us to hell. Has he not left a blessing behind us? Jesus is preparing a place for us. The blessing is coming in fullness. When we repented and turned to Christ the Savior, did he not show loving kindness to us, grace and mercy and compassion? Was he not slow to anger? If God has shown favor and blessing to us, shouldn't we then offer our lives back to God as living sacrifices, as thank offerings? That's what Romans chapter 12 tells us to do. In view of God's mercies, present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. This is the only thing that is expected of you. Nothing less will do but your whole life presented back to God who gave his life for you to give you blessing and to remove curses. And too many people who claim to be Christians never offer anything back to God for the grace and mercy that he supposedly showed them. They claim to be saved, that God has given them eternal life, and they claim this promise of a new creation alive with Him, but they don't serve God. They don't love God back. They are not faithful to God's people. I have to tell you that those people are likely not saved. God, let me, You know why? Because God doesn't save unrepentant people. He does not save unrepentant people. And to say Jesus is your Savior, but there is no repentance means you are not saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you confess Jesus as Lord, that is repentance. I do not boss me around anymore. God is my sovereign. You will be saved when you repent and trust that Jesus died and rose again. Not just believing that Jesus died and rose again. Do you you understand who God saves? You must understand that. He does not save people who merely give lip service to him. He doesn't save an unrepentant people according to what Joel is getting at. God only shows mercy and grace and compassion to those who stop their rebellion against him. So do not be deceived. God is not and will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. If you sow sin and unrepentance, you will perish in sin and damnation. It is pure hypocrisy to say that you are saved by God when you have never repented of your sin and offered yourselves up to God as a living sacrifice. God does not save unrepentance, nor does he save the faithless. Those who do not trust in Christ to save them. You must repent and you must believe. We have looked at repentance in Judah's requirement and then repentance in God's response. Next, we see the last thing is that we see the world's rumination in regards to repentance. Rumination means to consider intently. To consider intently. Our hypocrisy and our lack of repentance causes the world to see us and God in a certain way when we do not relive a repentant life. Before we get to that, we have to see that the threats of the judgment of God and the day of the Lord in Joel, they are meant to awaken people to grace that is on the horizon. Threats and warnings are always for their good. Blessings can be theirs, but this blessing causes Shame to be removed. The blessing that God gives his people in repentance and faith causes shame to be removed so that the world will no longer mock God. Thus, in the last part of our text, we see the world's rumination, the world's way of thinking, the world's way of questioning. We see what Joel says next. Blow the shofar, that's the ram's horn, in Zion, in Jerusalem. This is the second shofar that is blown in Joel. The first was to signal a ravaging that was coming. The second invasion is coming.? Right? The second signal was to signal uh, the second horn was to signal that repentance is required. The first one says there's a ravaging coming. The second horn says repentance is required." The first horn, you better worry. The second horn, you can have hope. There's a total shift here in what these horns are proclaiming. The horn was to get everyone's attention and let them know that God required a sacred fast and a solemn assembly. All the people were to be sanctified, which means to be set apart for a religious, God-centered meeting. This isn't a town hall meeting. This isn't a gathering for a local sporting event. It's a sacred assembly in which they are setting themselves aside for meeting with God. Who's required to attend? Aged people, infants, even those still nursing with their mothers. There was to be no excuses for why families with babies couldn't attend. Well, my baby has a sleep schedule and a feeding schedule that we have to really maintain. We can't make it. Nope. That's not what God says. The elderly, the infants, and the nursing babies were all required to adjust their lives around God. I shared with a married couple in our church a couple days ago that when Macy was born, our daughter, we incorporated her into church life. If she was sleepy, she just napped wherever we were as a baby. If she needed to be changed, we would excuse ourselves for a moment and go change her, and then come back, back to what we were doing. We didn't uh, adjust our lives to revolve around her. We made sure her life was revolving around God and God's people. And so she grew up around the church, not her peers. She grew up not just at home, but around the congregation and the regular, the regular assembling of God's people. And I believe with all my heart that this makes for healthier, God-centered homes where Christ rules the home. We cannot have godly homes where children are the primary focus of the parents. In today's society, we it seems that many parents think that they exist for their kids when both parents and kids exist for God. And infancy was not an excuse for these people, and it shouldn't be for us. Even newlyweds had to show up. Oh man. It says, leave your bedroom, your honeymoon squeak, because it's time for everyone to repent. That's how serious this particular meeting was. There's no time for joy. No time for consummating a marriage. Our land is destroyed. God is judging us and will further judge us. But he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from sending disaster. So let us pray, everyone, that God would bless us. The priests who serve the Lord in the temple are to weep and to pray in the portico, which is... a vestibule or a porch. And in the temple, there's a couple porches. I couldn't tell which one they were talking about from the text. <clears throat> there were divided opinions. <clears throat> it's not a huge point of contention, but they were to gather, number one, in a, one of two places, either in a common entry area, because when you, you walk into the temple, there were some initial steps and then like a patio, okay? And then a, a little bit way further ahead <clears throat> was the altar, where sacrifices were taking place. So there's a common area, likely, where Jesus taught. He's like, hey, between the porch and the altar, you can gather here and you can face the Holy of Holies with the altar in front of you, and you can pray for God to have pity on you. That's one place they could have stood. The other place would have been actually between the Holy Place, which contained the Holy of Holies also, But there was a a priestly court and in that priestly court there was the altar and then another porch that led up into the uh, the holy place and the most holy place. So they could have stood in one of two places, either with the altar in front of them looking towards the holy of holies or they could have stood in an open area with the altar to their back. Okay. Either way, they are mediating for God's people. It it seems to me, um, based on what I could tell, that they might be meeting in the more common area. And in doing so, they are identifying with the sinners that they are a part of. There is no priestly work to be done in the priestly course because there is no food and no offerings to offer to God. They can't do their work. Their only work now consists of praying to God for the people. And so just like Jesus, who identifies with us as sinners, he came in the flesh. And then who prays to God, who, who goes to God and offers up his life facing the most holy one and And says, Lord, have mercy and have pity on your people. So it may be that they were meeting in this common area, identifying with God's people and interceding for them. Now, we must see that it is a time now for them to pray for mercy and pity. So that's what these priests were doing, okay? We see that this blessing from God, if God gives it, it will destroy the mockery and the rumination of the nations. Because right now, as it stands, the nations would look at Judah and see that God has forsaken them. If the nations, as they're looking at Judah, see no blessing, no land, uh, no fruit, uh, uh, harvest and no fruit, Judah will be laughed at. And the nations will say, "Huh? supposedly, they worship the God who made everything. But look, they have no food. They have no food. That's the kind of attitude that the world would have. Lord, they will think we are worthless. They're going to mock us. And they're not going to believe that you are the one true God because of the judgment that you have brought on us and our devastation, Uh, the devastation has overtaken the land. They're going to ridicule, scorn, and mock us. If our land is barren and fruitless because of this devastation, the nations will say that you don't exist, that you are powerless, or that you are faithless. Why should they be given reason to say these things, Lord? And so we must see that Joel's concern here in this whole situation that as these people repent and receive the blessing of God, Joel's ultimate concern here is for the glory of God in Judah's repentance. These people are God's possession, his heritage, his inheritance. And the world looks as if they're in a situation where their God cannot take care of them. Of course, the world is misguided here, the nations are. The problem is not with God, it's with Judah. Joel wants the priest to pray so that God's name is vindicated by his blessing and the restoring of the land. But Judah must repent. In doing so, the world's faulty thinking, their rumination will be shut down. And this got me thinking. Shouldn't the Christian life be the most blessed life of all? I'm not talking about riches and big houses and big fancy boats. But didn't the Lord promise us an abundant life? Or was Jesus just lying? Did he only mean for that to be the new heaven on the new earth and a new creation in the afterlife? I've come to give you life and life abundantly, but not until thousands of years now. you're going to have to wait a very long time for this life. I believe Jesus came to give us abundant life now. It's that it's not just reserved for the new creation. There's a fullness, but that you have eternal life now. Okay? We have the wisdom of God in His word, right? We have the Spirit of God in us. Are we blessed or what? Why does the world mock us then? Many reasons, but I think one reason that we can help eliminate, I think it's because God's blessings are not fully on us because we walk too much in sin. As God's people, we are not as holy as we ought to be. A life of sin is not a thriving life. A life of sin is a decaying life. Do you, you recognize the, the destruction that your own sin brings into your life, right? Do you not give people reason, and I, do we not give people reason to mock our God when we reap the consequences of our own sinful behavior? The world mocks us because they don't see God's activity in our lives because of our sin. We don't raise our kids according to the counsel of God. We don't manage our money like God tells us to do. We don't love our spouses like we're supposed to. We don't honor our parents like we should. We aren't faithful to God's people, the church, like we're supposed to. We live in our own wisdom too often. We don't bridle our tongues. We let the sun go down upon our wrath. We nurse our sin, and we expect God to bless this sort of life? How wrong and how foolish we are. No wonder the world mocks Christians. Many are Christians in name only and not fully devoted to God. Like Judah, may we repent as God's people. May we repent in such a way that God radically blesses our lives so that the world will stop their mocking, shut their mouths, and humbly bow before Jesus Christ as Savior and Creator. That is the amazing grace of God, that He would bless us when we repent. So why don't we take hold of that grace and mercy and slowness of anger and and compassion and a God who relents? Why don't we take hold of that grace and receive it from God? but it must come with repentance. Or we can just keep living a mediocre, sin-filled life for God and let the world mock us and our God. I say, let's repent and take hold of God's grace in greater measure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father.